Thanks for joining me for 2 Corinthians 11. I'll be reading, as always, in the Phillips translation. I wish you could put up with a little of my foolishness. Please try. My jealousy over you is the right sort of jealousy. For in my eyes, you are like a fresh, unspoiled girl whom I am presenting as fiancé to your true husband, Christ himself. I am afraid that your minds may be seduced from a single-hearted devotion to him by the same subtle means that the serpent used towards Eve. Friends, could I take you on a journey right now? A little meander through all the ways this metaphor has been woven into the history of God and man? I'll take your silence for a yes. Because when you look all the way back, back to the very dawning of this, all the way back to Adam and Eve, what do you have? You have a man and woman walking in perfect union with each other and God. Totally one, both, again, with each other and with the God who had made them. It's a marital union, really, between God and humanity, and it is perfect, totally unspoiled. Well, then comes those subtle means of attack that Paul references here. Which is what? Well, first to personally reinterpret the command of God, to insert one's reasons, thoughts into the simple loving obedience that's called for. You remember those words? Did God really say? Then, the next subtle means, are to hear a direct lie about the truthfulness of God's life and death plan for mankind. Oh no, you will not certainly die, the serpent said and then to continue to entertain such a voice that questions the veracity of God's voice and knowledge. That's the second part. And finally, it's to want to be God. As if union with him in perfect relationship isn't enough. The desire to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is born not from the seeming sweetness of the fruit, but from the elevation Eve is told will follow. I mean, think about it. She has walked alongside God up till now. Now she wants to walk in ascendancy with him and really above him. But by the way, all of that is just prologue to Paul's words here. Let's get back to the fiance and the true husband. After the fall, and despite the almost desperate pain that the heart of God must have felt in its betrayal, He just wouldn't stop pursuing his people. And woven into the ins and outs of all of what we call the Old Testament are particular words that speak particularly about the relationship. I want you to listen to his vision for it. Isaiah 54. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded. For you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Isaiah 62. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. 
You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then Ezekiel 16. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And then... And right up to the moment of when the bridegroom himself now comes and is standing at the front, you can almost imagine it, of the wedding ceremony. He's fully incarnate, uh, having become flesh, by the way, we call him Jesus. I want you to listen to how his best man, John the Baptist, describes his, John the Baptist's place within this whole arrangement. This comes from John 3. Oh, this is so good. You yourselves can witness that I said, I I am not Christ, but I have been sent as his forerunner. It is the bridegroom who possesses the bride. Yet the bridegroom's friend, who merely stands and listens to him, can be overjoyed to hear the bridegroom's voice. That is why my happiness is now complete. He must grow greater and greater, and I less and less. Friends, isn't that just lovely that John, standing just behind Jesus, delighting in even the sound of his voice, eagerly awaits the moment when the back doors of the wedding service open and the bride, the church, comes down the aisle. Because yes, who is the bride? Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. My friends, isn't it so wonderfully glorious that all the wayward, confused wandering of humanity can actually end in being enfolded right back into God? That the way he first intended it, 
walking in the cool of the day with one man and one woman is also how this new covenant sequel may go? In fact, could I just pray right now for our hearts to actually receive this goodness? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to actually receive and truly believe that just as it was with Adam and Eve before the fall is how you want it to be today. That the intimacy between us would be so complete that we would just sort of bleed into each other. So thank you that for all history before you came, Jesus, you never stopped pursuing people, humanity. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that by your blood, we have been made new so that we can be one with you in union with you. So just like Paul prayed for his friends, I pray for us that we would see ourselves as fresh and unspoiled. You've done the work, Jesus. And I pray that the marriage supper of the Lamb is where our eyes would be fixed, that we would just picture that joy, that party, and yearn that we might be one every single day. Lord Jesus, thank you that it is so, and just thank you for your goodness. We receive it. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, friends, we got to get back to 2 Corinthians 11, because that was a long sidetrack. All right, back, back here we go. It's about verse 4. For apparently, you cheerfully accept a man who comes to you preaching a different Jesus from the one we told you about, and you readily receive a spirit and a gospel quite different from the ones you originally accepted. Which, just to make sure that we've got it, really begs the question, what is the gospel? Like, how do you personally define it? Well, regardless of how you define it, the way that Paul defines it back in 1 Corinthians 15 is by reminding us that Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. That is the gospel Paul is referencing here. But actually, I just have one more thing to note. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in modern American evangelical circles, I have noticed that it's often the mechanics of the gospel that get most highlighted. Here's what I mean by that. When people talk about those three points that Paul offers us in 1 Corinthians 15, they might talk about it this way. Jesus lived. Jesus died. And Jesus rose again. Well, all of that is true, but I want to remind your heart, really, and your mind, too, that the true glory of the gospel actually sounds like this. Jesus lived. Jesus died. And Jesus rose again. You see, friends, Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news not just the mechanics whereby he got it done. He is the centerpiece of it all. Okay, we continue. Yet I cannot believe I am in the least inferior to these extra special messengers of yours. Perhaps I am not a polished speaker, but I do know what I am talking about. And both what I am and what I say is pretty familiar to you. Perhaps I made a mistake in cheapening myself, though I did it to help you, by preaching the gospel without a fee? As a matter of fact, 
I was only able to do this by robbing other churches, for it was what they paid me that made it possible to minister to you free of charge. Even when I was with you and very hard up, I did not bother any of you. It was the brothers who came from Macedonia who brought me all that I needed. Yes, I kept myself from being a burden to you then, and so I intend to do in the future. By the truth of Christ within me, no one shall stop my being proud of this independence through all Achaia. To me, this is a powerful picture of the degree to which Paul maintained his trust in the Lord's ability to provide for and really to push his ministry all over the Roman world. I mean, it's very little planning. It's maximum trust. And I have to ask, isn't that far more inspiring than perfectly planned, perfectly financed ministry? And I love it because it's far more like the directives that Jesus himself gave when he sent out the 12 way back in Matthew 10. Do you remember this? Jesus said, as you go, proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure lepers, drive out devils, give as you have received without any charge, whatever. Don't take any gold or silver or even coppers to put in your purse, nor a knapsack for the journey, not even a change of clothes or sandals or a staff. The workman is worth his keep. Personally, I have always believed that the workmen and women for the kingdom of heaven should lead all others in their personal trust for the Lord's personalized provision. I mean, let them trust him alone who would actually endeavor to lead others. Let's keep reading. Does this mean that I do not love you? God knows it doesn't, but I am determined to maintain this boast so as to cut the ground from under the feet of those who profess to be God's messengers on the same terms as I am. Which, back to that last thought, sort of proves that last thought. If Paul is able to, by trust, maintain his ministry through the direct heavenly provision of the Lord, he believes over time this will actually discredit those other grasping, acquisitive people. Essentially, to let his trust be his calling card, not a constant needy ask for more and more and more. Then he goes on. God's messengers? They are counterfeits of the real thing. Dishonest practitioners, God's messengers only by their own appointment. Nor do their tactics surprise me when I consider how Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is only to be expected that his agents shall have the appearance of ministers of righteousness, but they will get their deserts one day. To which we would say like, whoa, yikes. Then he continues. Once more, let me advise you not to look upon me as a fool. Yet if you do, then listen to what this fool has to boast about. And friends, what follows is one of the most totally real, wonderfully almost humorous, clearly exasperated stretches of Paul's writings found anywhere in the whole of the New Testament. So I have to read it to you all together with possibly, I think, some of its tone. And then at the end, we'll circle back. 
Okay, so I'm going to be starting to read here in verse 17. I am not now speaking as the Lord commands me, but as a fool who must be in on this business of boasting. Since all the others are so proud of themselves, let me do a little boasting as well. From your heights of superior wisdom, I assure you can smile tolerantly on a fool. Oh, you're tolerant, all right. You don't mind, do you, if a man takes away your liberty, spends your money, makes a fool of you, and even smacks your face? I'm almost ashamed to say that I never did brave, strong things like that to you. Yet in whatever particular they enjoyed such confidence, I, speaking as a fool, remember, have just as much confidence. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I have more claim to this title than they. This is a silly game, but look at this list. I have worked harder than any of them. I have served more prison sentences. I have been beaten times without number. I have faced death again and again. I have been beaten the regulation 39 stripes by the Jews five times. I have been beaten with rods three times. I have been stoned once. I have been shipwrecked three times. I have been 24 hours in the open sea. In my travels, I have been in constant danger from rivers and floods, from bandits, from my own countrymen, and from pagans. I have faced danger in city streets, danger in the desert, danger on the high seas, danger among false Christians. I have known exhaustion, pain, long vigils, hunger and thirst, doing without meals, cold, and lack of clothing. Apart from all external trials, I have the daily burden of responsibility for all the churches. Do you think anyone is weak without my feeling his weakness? Does anyone have his faith upset without my longing to restore him? Oh, if I am going to boast, let me boast of the things which have shown up my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I speak the simple truth. In Damascus, the town governor, acting by King Aretas's order, had men out to arrest me. I escaped by climbing through a window and being let down the wall in a basket. That's the sort of dignified exit I can boast about. My friends, what strikes one as you're reading through or listening through this passage is the degree to which our own experience is nothing like this. Our following of Jesus, for better and generally worse, is more like attempting to marry uh, some bits of obedience with hopes of having a perfectly comfortable, well-provided-for American dream existence just like everyone else around us. When we wake up in the morning, if you're anything like me, we enjoy the fruits of, you know, some reading, prayer, contemplation, and then, feeling ready, we start our day. And actually, perhaps that's how this passage is most convicting to me. Typically, I start my day. I do my day the way I'll do another 100,000 days by going about what's practically personally best for me. I'm not particularly thinking of any eventuality where I'll be beaten, sent to prison, 
face untimely death, or find myself shipwrecked. Do you know why? Because at the end of the day, actually, from even the start of the day, what I am primarily focusing my day upon is my own passage through it. I tend to think of how the working of my schedule will arrive my comfortable self on my comfortable couch at the end of another reasonably comfortable day. You know what? The relative boredoms of my life, perhaps you can relate to this, is really due to the fact that I only follow Jesus up to a point. Only really to where he accords with my little American lifestyle. Only to where I can still conform his way to mine. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Because the point of Paul's travails throughout his ministry wasn't his travails. The point for everything on every day was Jesus himself. Jesus, as the teacher, leader, savior, friend, guiding Paul in teaching, leading, saving, and in friendship. Jesus, who was sitting there beside him in a Philippian or Roman jail cell, just talking with him through the next steps they were going to take. Jesus, the one upon whom Paul had set his eyes whenever he was taking a beating for the sake of the gospel. Jesus, the voice that once had blazed above the road toward Damascus, who is still every day speaking to Paul's heart. For Paul, nothing competed with that one. No people group designation, no religious or denominational affiliation, no perceived self-importance in the structure of the whole thing. And nothing could stop his quest for that man. No call to any impossible work, no sort of mental or physical agony, no hardship in life or fear of death, nothing. In fact, as he'll later write to the Romans, listen, All who follow the leading of God's Spirit are God's own sons. Nor are you meant to relapse into the old slavish attitude of fear. You have been adopted into the very family circle of God. And you can say with a full heart, Father, my Father. The Spirit himself endorses our inward conviction that we really are the children of God. Think what that means. If we are his children, we share his treasures And all that Christ claims as his will belong to all of us as well. Yes, if we share in his suffering, we shall certainly share in his glory. In my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. And even earlier in Romans, he had written this. Listen, this doesn't mean, of course, that we have only a hope of future joys We can be full of joy here and now, even in the midst of our trials and troubles. Taken in the right spirit, these very things will give us patient endurance. This in turn will develop a mature character, and a character of this sort produces a steady hope, a hope that will never disappoint us. Already, we have some experience of the love of God flooding through our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us. And actually, you know what, friends? That's where I want to conclude these thoughts and sort of ramblings. With that Holy Spirit given to us. My friends, it is the degree to which we partake of Jesus himself by the power of the Holy Spirit within that is deciding the sorts of lives we will have lived. Qualitatively and quantitatively, both in joy and in struggle. 
So will we today, this week, this month, this year, for the rest of our given lives, take hold of what is ours of access and abiding? Will we so enjoy the fruits of Jesus' nearness that no matter the trial, no matter the tribulation, nothing can compete with his voice? Or more simply put, will we follow him today? And how about tomorrow? Thanks for listening.